A quick note before we get started. Earlier this week, on February the 15th of 2021, our guest, Jason Sanford, published an in-depth report on the calls for political violence that have been taking place over on the Bain's Bar Forum, which is run by the science fiction publisher Bain Books. Since that report went up, Jason has received numerous threats online. In light of that, I would like to urge you, if investigative journalism is at all important to you, to support Jason's work over on Patreon. This episode contains some strong language. Additionally, there's a content note for non-explicit mentions of torture in this episode's reading. If you would like to avoid this content, you can skip ahead 16 minutes from the start of the reading. Now, on with the show. got good sound wigglies and i do too and they're jumping all around excellent all right hello and welcome to tales from the trunk reading the stories that didn't make it i'm hillary b bisniaks today listeners i'm very excited to have an author of science fiction fantasy and the genre grapevine column on Patreon, Jason Sanford. Jason, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, I've I've had you on. I, I feel like I say this every episode at this point, but I've had you on my wish list. Uh, I have this project tracking sheet that I use for my podcast, and I've had you on my guest wish list since I started the show pretty much uh, and had the good luck in the past year that we've uh, ended up in intersecting communities where I could make this happen without just being like, hi, I'm a random person. <laughs> yes, yes, no, absolutely. Uh, so Jason, you're going to be reading your story, The Wheels on the Torture Bus Go Round and Round. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. It's a play off the uh, famous uh, kids song. Excellent. And is there anything that you need us to know about it before we get into the story? No, this is a complete story. Um, I'm able to read. It's a, one of my, I, I got to be honest, uh, I don't write a ton of stories that are shorter, that are under 3,000 words or even under 2,000. This is one, mm -hmm. one of the few. And it just never had any luck in landing. <laughs> I totally feel that. Well, I am ready when you are. Great. The wheels on the torture bus go round and round. All the neighborhood kids, except for Jane, cheered when the torture bus stopped in front of Miss McKinney's house. After all, her roses were far too red, and her white-painted house far too dazzling, and she continually asked kids not to shortcut across her lawn of perfectly cut grass. Jane tried explaining that Miss McKinney was nice and didn't deserve the torture bus, However, Benny pushed Jane aside and declared that Miss Kinney deserved to be hurt. I knocked a baseball in her backyard last week, Benny said, and she 
didn't return it. He said this last part as if he just revealed the suspect behind a grisly murder. Did you get your ball back? Jane muttered. The other kids rolled their eyes. Doesn't matter, Benny snapped. It's my ball. You don't give it back. That's stealing. Benny wasn't the biggest kid in the neighborhood, but he was the meanest and he knew how to punch. Plus, his parents had been subjected to multiple visits by the torture bus. Benny told anyone who'd listened that he no longer feared punishment for his misdeeds. If his parents could survive the torture bus, so could he. Jane fell quiet as the other kids glared at her. Those kids were certain they were right, and for them, Miss McKinney clearly resided on the evil side of the neighborhood. They watched as the torture techs opened the back of their yellow bus and wheeled out an Iron Maiden stretcher and a satchel of scary tools. The techs wore black coveralls embroidered with a grinning cartoon devil holding a red whip. The lead torture tech skipped happily to Miss McKinney's door and rang the bell. Miss McKinney opened the door, her entire body shaking, and she let them inside. Once the door closed, the kids ran across the street and stood on her lush green lawn. Jane didn't want to go, but Benny grabbed her arm and dragged her along. The kids listened as Miss McKinney screamed. Everyone but Jane ooed when Miss McKinney shrieked. Everyone but Jane odd when Miss McKinney cried. And when Miss McKinney begged for mercy, everyone but Jane laughed because they knew begging for mercy did no good. Jane tried to leave, but Benny held tight to her arm. When Jane finally said she had to go home or she'd miss lunch, Benny nodded like a beach ball bobbing in a pool of splashing kids. Let's listen up close, Benny whispered, from the bushes. Then I'll let you go. Jane and Benny hid in the bushes beneath Mrs. McKinney's living room window. Being this close to the house made Jane feel as if Miss McKinney's cries shimmered in rainbow colors. As if Jane saw the screams in reds and whites and blues instead of hearing them. Sickened, Jane turned to leave, but Benny sucker-punched her in the stomach. Jane doubled over between the house and shrubs. She gasped, tried to stand, couldn't. She fell back, still gasping. You'll leave when I say, Benny said with a snort. When the torture techs left two hours later, the other kids applauded. The lead tech, a tall man with the name Leroy, sewn on his coveralls, waved at the kids before the torture bus drove away. Only then was Jane allowed to stagger home. That night, Jane didn't sleep well. She dreamed of baseballs bouncing into Mrs. McKinney's yard, causing the old lady to cry out in pain each time one touched her lawn. Jane woke screaming, as if the torture bus had parked inside her head. Her mother opened the door to her bedroom. Bad dream, hon? Mom asked. What did Miss McKinney do? Jane whispered, to make the torture bus come. Mom sat on the edge of Jane's bed and hugged her. One of those reassuring hugs Mom frequently gave when Jane was young. But Jane was too old for that and pushed the hug away. Seriously, Mom, she said, what did Miss McKinney do? Mom sighed. How should I know? Maybe it's all of what we do. The times you're nasty to some stranger. The moment you gave the finger to another driver. The day you called in sick at work so you could go to the beach. 
our sins add up. Mom kissed Jane on the forehead and walked back to her own bedroom. But now Jane definitely couldn't sleep. Were her sins being compiled somewhere? She opened the blinds on a window and looked across the street at Miss McKinney's house. A single light glowed from a second-floor window. The silhouette of Miss McKinney stood behind the glass as if contemplating the neighborhood. Jane thought about turning on her own bedroom light. Maybe if she blinked the light, Miss McKinney would know she wasn't alone. But mm -hmm. she didn't. Instead, Jane stood in the dark and watched until Miss McKinney's own light turned off. Jane lay back down in her bed, but she still couldn't sleep. The next afternoon, Jane sat on her front lawn, tossing a baseball into the air and catching it without a glove. Benny and the other kids were at the park playing a pickup game. Even though Jane was the best pitcher in the neighborhood, she refused to join them. She knew if Benny or the others teased her about yesterday, she'd lose her temper, which would cause Benny to beat her up. Or worse, her own anger might make the torture bus arrive. As Jane sat on the grass forcing herself to think happy, non-sinful thoughts, a small white van with no markings on the side stopped in front of Miss McKinney's house. A tall man in a plaid polo shirt stepped out holding a black bag. He walked to the front door and rang the bell. Jane recognized him as the lead torture tech from yesterday. When Miss McKinney opened the door, the man walked in without being invited. Miss McKinney hesitated before slowly closing the door. Jane glanced at her own house. Mom wasn't watching her right now, and no one else in the neighborhood had noticed the torture tech, probably because he wasn't driving the scary yellow torture bus or wearing his usual black overalls. Jane ran across the street and stood in front of Miss McKinney's house, tossing the baseball and catching it as if she had nowhere else to play. She did mm -hmm. this for nearly a half hour before the front door opened and the tech walked out. He thanked Miss McKinney, who grinned nervously and said it was her pleasure before closing the door. Leroy was embroidered in small letters over the right pocket of the man's shirt. As he walked to the van, Jane dropped the baseball, which rolled under the vehicle. Let me see if I can reach it, Leroy said, kneeling and looking under the van. May I ask a question, Jane asked. Leroy stopped reaching for the baseball. Might be dangerous, he whispered. You'll be on people's radar. They'll see you talking with a torture tech. No one's watching, and you aren't in uniform. You'd be surprised what people notice, even on discreet follow-up visits like this. But go on. What's the question? What did Miss McKinney do? Leroy laughed. You're not supposed to ask that. Hell, not even Miss McKinney knows what she did. Leroy looked around the neighborhood. No one was watching. Even Miss McKinney's blinds were closed. You really want to know? Jane nodded. Every action has an opposite and equal reaction, Leroy whispered as he pulled a clipboard from his bag. A stack of pages with swirling images and colors lay attached to the board, the top page bearing Miss McKinney's name. Leroy tapped the page. The swirling colors coalesced into words and diagrams and information about Miss McKinney. Let's see, Leroy said. Ah, look here. The tipping point was a few days ago in a grocery store. Miss McKinney took too long paying, and so that Betty Deviney, 
who lives down the street and was in line behind her, complained. But that's merely the peak of our nasty little iceberg. Miss McKinney also recently yelled at her grown daughter for staying engaged to a man who abuses her, and she said sacrilegious things to the preacher at her church. On Easter of all days, and here's something else about a baseball in her backyard not being returned, Jane frowned. That would be Benny. Ah, the ball? Ah, yes, I see the footnote. You are correct. But none of that's bad. Maybe not, but it's enough. Leroy shuffled the pages on his clipboard. Want to see your page? Or your mom's? Jane glanced at the clipboard's new top page, where her name appeared in black alongside a swirling rainbow of deeds and events from her life. She recognized the cruel words she'd said a while back to Benny, and the time she'd yelled at her mother because she didn't want to visit relatives. Jane even saw this very moment as she wrongly learned of the connections and events which brought the torture bust to someone's door. Jane looked away. I don't want to know. Leroy placed the clipboard back in his bag and reached under the van, pulling out the baseball. You're a good kid, Jane, he said, even though Jane hadn't shared her name. He handed the ball back. I've got something for you. Leroy pulled a business card from his pocket and placed it in Jane's hand next to the baseball. One free torture, Leroy said. You call that number, say a name, and the bus will pull up at their door within the hour. Jane stared at the card, which was absolutely black except for a series of glowing white numbers. Leroy stepped into the van and drove off with a big wave of his hand and a big grin on his face. Jane sat on her front lawn for the rest of the afternoon, the baseball in one hand and the card in another. An hour after Leroy left, a car stopped in front of Miss McKinney's house and her daughter stepped out. The daughter had a large bruise on her left eye, which Miss McKinney didn't comment on as the daughter helped her mother walk to the car. They drove off without a word, not wanting to be late for evening church services. Jane flicked the card against the baseball. Maybe she should call and name the abusive jerk engaged to Miss McKinney's daughter. He deserved to be tortured. Maybe it would make him stop hurting people. Or maybe Jane should call about Betty Deviney, who, who'd been in line at the grocery store when Miss McKinney took so long paying. Of all the silly reasons to be angry at someone... Leroy said that incident was the tipping point which caused Miss McKinney to be tortured. Surely Betty Deviney deserved punishment for that. But Jane was uncertain and carefully slid the card back in her pocket. Could, could it truly be this simple? The pages on the torture text clipboard showed so many slights and wrongs and mistakes and misunderstandings swirling around each person's life. So much information collected about each of them information building and growing until one minor issue went bumpty bump and the torture bus arrived at your door. And Jane knew she wasn't innocent. Her own page had shown the time she'd yelled at mom because she didn't want to visit relatives. Jane had been in a sour mood that day and merely wanted to be left alone. She didn't hate her family, but that was how mom took it. When the torture techs eventually knocked on Jane's door and dragged in their Iron Maiden stretcher and satchel of scary tools, would they say, as Jane screamed, that this is how that she'd made her mother feel on that long-ago day? 
Jane shuddered and cursed. Not pretend curses like the kids muttered to avoid bringing the torture bus, but a real mm. curse. She was still sitting on her front lawn when Benny and the other kids walked down the sidewalk, returning from their pickup game. Aww, Benny said in his booming, bragging voice, his baseball bat slung over his shoulder. Jane has no one to play with. That's going on your page, Jane thought, but didn't say. What she did say, though, was, Piss off! The kids <laughs> stared at her in shock. What was that? Benny asked in a low voice. I said, Piss off! Leave me alone! The kids looked around, as if bad language alone could cause the torture bus to appear. Benny's hands shook. Usually he was the one who spoke bad words and beat up kids and did all the other wrongdoings in their neighborhood. Benny pointed the baseball bat at Jane. You better be careful, he warned. My dad's been tortured four times, my mom three times. I don't fear the torture bus. You should, Jane said as she stood up, her baseball grip tight in her hand, ready to be pitched at Benny's head if the bully attacked. I'll crack your skull open with this ball before you reach me. Benny glanced nervously at the baseball Jane held. All the kids knew how good a pitcher she was. You do that, Benny said, and the bus will get you. Maybe, but it will get you first. Your head will be split open and you'll be crying, and there will be the torture bus, the text knocking at your door. Jane glared at Benny, daring the bully to try her. Jane felt the baseball in her hand felt the business card poking her slightly in her pocket. Benny looked at the other kids. Let the bus have her, he said, pretending to more bravery than he felt. When the bus comes, we'll laugh as she screams. Jane jumped forward as if to bean Benny with the ball, causing him to stumble backward and fall. Benny quickly jumped up, his face red, embarrassed, and glared at Jane before walking down the sidewalk towards home. The other kids stared at Jane in shock before following him. Jane stood on the front lawn. Thick, green grass, although not as thick nor as green as Miss McKinney's yard. Jane knew this was going on her page. All of it. Every day of her life becoming merely one more step before the torture bus arrived for her. But if everything went on her page, did it even matter if she was good or bad? Jane pulled the card from her pocket and tapped it against the baseball. Benny and his friends would be at his house by now. They'd be laughing at her, calling her names, deciding what to do next time they caught her alone. Maybe, just maybe, the torture bus could take care of both Benny and his friends. It couldn't hurt to ask. Jane walked inside to make the call. Whew. That'd be it. <laughs> I don't think that I could breathe the entire time I was listening to that. That was intense. Oh, oh thank you. It's It's been one of my, I really, uh, I mean, I like all the stories I write. Uh, I've really loved this story. Um, I wrote it for a uh, submission to a political-themed uh, anthology. Um, didn't make the cut there. And, you know, there was a lot of writers and stories. I won't name the anthology, but it was a good one when it came out. Mm -hmm. I submitted it to, I think, eight or ten other places. Came close. I mean, it went to rewrites for one place, a good pro magazine. and 
but it just never quite uh, clicked. It's a little bit different from most of the stories I write, and I think that might have been part of the problem. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, my... Yeah, uh, it's... I mean, it's it's always, you know, right editor, right time, right, right. words, and even then, a whole helping of luck. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and there's, you know, some you can have a very good story that... that you know, I'm not. I'm not trying to praise my story. Um, For but sure. No, yeah. no. But I'm just saying you, there are plenty of great stories which don't end up getting accepted into pro publications or other places. And I could have kept submitting it around, but at some point I just, you know, I moved on. And, yeah. Uh, it just sat there, and then you sent this, and I was like, "Ooh, I got a trunk story. I'd love to share." <laughs> nice. Yeah. It does. Um, I don't know if it's the same anthology. I'm not going to name names either, but it. It reminds me of a story that ended up being the uh, like headlining story of an anthology I slushed for a number of years ago. Ah, uh, which you know, I'm not saying it's the same <laughs> anthology. No, I understand. Yeah, uh, no, no. But it's one of those things that, as a slush reader, you mm. get to see like, oh. So this didn't get up accepted because we had another one just like exactly, that. Exactly. That happens. I, when I was a young uh, writer, um, I worked at a uh, press called Meadowbrook Press, uh, which mm-hmm. was an independent publisher distributed by Simon & Schuster. Um, they mainly did baby name books, but they also did uh, <laughs> ki- kids' poetry, uh, uh, funny poems for kids, Shel Silverstein, mm-hmm. stuff like that, um, and anthologies of that. And they also did... Uh, short stories for kids um and one of their series was newfangled fairy tales and i i got to read uh slush for the first edition and i was like oh i want to try writing one so i wrote one uh called rumpelstiltskin private eye and you know (laughs) i showed it to the editor and uh editor liked it and you know after rerounds it got accepted so um i was still reading slush for the uh, series and then one day i opened up an envelope and there is a story from an author titled Rumpelstiltskin, Private Eye. And I, my heart was like, oh my God. <laughs> but it's the same, you know, mine had already been accepted. But then I was like, oh God, this is going to sound like a, such a conflict of interest, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, even though I I wasn't the editor of the series, you know. And, you know, so, but it, it was a different story. Don't get me wrong. But there were similarities. There were similarities, even though we'd never read For each sure. other's. And so, yeah, it happens all the time. You know, you don't know what, um, especially with themed anthologies. Um, mm-hmm. A few years ago, well, quite, uh, I don't know, it might have been longer than that, maybe within the decade. or uh, there was fake. It doesn't matter. Yeah, there was a pirate uh, anthology, well-known, a couple of pirate anthologies. You know, there was the pirate craze, you know, mm-hmm. not a while back. And, um, and uh, uh, publications and everywhere got flooded with pirate stories that got rejected from there. You know, and it's just... It wasn't that they were bad stories. They were just, you know, not too many for the anthology. And editors were like, I, you know, I'd hear from them like, oh, my God, I got a billion pirate stories in my queue yeah. right now. You know, which then makes it harder for you to sell your story, pirate story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When we had uh, A.J. Hackwith on the show last, oh, God, that was two years ago now. September of 2019, I think, uh her story was there had been like two or three dinosaur anthologies Mm -hmm. that had been happening in 2018, I think. Yeah. Uh, And 
you know, hers was one that just didn't quite make the cut, and it was a great story, and I was super, like, thrilled to have it on the show, but it's it just goes to show, like, oh, sometimes it's just a matter of, you know, the themed anthologies, and especially, like, a dino- dinosaur one is a lot easier mm-hmm. than some of the hyper-specific anthologies. Oh, that makes it hard. That makes it very hard. Um, I had a, a story um, come out... Uh couple of years ago uh, came out intergalactic medicine show is about a, a vampire set in the uh, renaissance or pre-renaissance italy um mm-hmm. which funny thing i'll mention in a second but i'd written this for a themed anthology and it got um and the anthology was delayed and at some point i i contact the editors like look is my story have a real shot and she was real cool and she's like no it's it's not gonna you know you'll get a rejection <laughs> so i went ahead and pulled it and submitted it and got it accepted somewhere else right before they sent out all these rejections of, you know, so it was like, Oh my God, I beat the rush, you know? And the funny thing is that story um, features the same vampire that I have in uh, a story that just came out last year in Asimov's called the eight thousanders. It's the same character, but in a different setting, she's on Mount Everest this time, uh, tracking down tech uh, entitled tech bros. It's, it's definitely a commentary on my views on the tech industry in some ways. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, if it, it's funny because if, if I had not um, gotten that story accepted, I probably never would have written a second story with the main character, even though they're totally standalone on each of them. You yeah, know, so it's just sure. how it works out. That's, that's so interesting to... Uh... And, and like, really shows just how random this industry is mm-hmm. in some ways. So one of the things which I mentioned uh, in the introduction is you write not just fiction, you also write nonfiction about the genre uh, as a community uh, for your genre grapevine column. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sure a million people have asked you this, but I always uh go for the low-hanging fruit if i can which is what made you want to start that column because it's <laughs> i find it such like i'm always excited when a new genre yeah. grapevine oh, comes cool. out oh well thank you uh and i've been supporting your patreon for a while at this point because it's a valuable surface service but it's one of those like the only other place that i ever have gotten genre news has been like the front matter in Locus every month. Right. And that has to go through, you know, trad pub schedules mm-hmm. of making print deadlines and everything. Oh, whereas yeah. you have much more of a, uh, much more latitude to do things because you're publishing online. Right. Right. Well, I, um, you know, like most writers, I have a, a job to support myself and my family. Um, I've worked in the journalism field for a number of years. I'm a member of the Society of Professional Journalists. Um, I used to work as a, a purely, you know, I started off my first job after college was a, a reporter for a small weekly paper um, mm-hmm. and went from there. So I've been a journalist for a long time. Um, and ironically uh one so one i love doing that Uh, i mean i do you know and so when i see something going on in the genre community and i care a lot about the community um if there's something that irks me or something that just kind of rubs my back the wrong way i'm like oh i want to do a story on that 
you know, For and sure, I, yeah. and this gives me an outlet and ability to do that. Um, but also in the jobs I've had, um, it's kind of funny. They've, um, they kind of have prepped me to do this column in some ways. Cause the one, the news, I do these little short news summaries. Um, mm-hmm. and I like the last three jobs I've had each of them, or four jobs actually shoot. Um, I had to do some, a similar type thing as what I do with the news summaries and stuff, um, mm-hmm. but I do it for different industries and stuff like that. And and you know, so it's kind of it's just I've been my career in journalism has kind of trained me to do it. And, you know, it's kind of weird. <laughs> At least the you know finding the quirky and the interesting news to summarize and mm-hmm. pre- presenting it in briefs and stuff like that. But the longer form investigative journalism, this does, I don't do that as much through the column, but it gives me an opportunity to do that too. And I really do, I think it's something we need is good journalism. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, we can look at the society at the moment and see what happens when you don't, you know, when journalists don't really practice what they should be doing, you know, when lies Mm -hmm. and, and, and false information are accepted without, you know, critique are accepted without any question. Yeah. And it is, you know, I I grew up in uh, a genre-heavy house, and my dad has been subscribed to Locus my entire life. Mm. Um, so I, I grew up with having this publication coming into my house every month. But when I started writing, you know, I... I leaf through locus every once in a while um and it you know it truly is a a great resource as well but there wasn't i i started writing to with the aim of getting published in you know 2005 2006 when there wasn't really social media in the way that there is now Mm -hmm. when there wasn't when writing communities were all basically in-person affairs or like You know, they might be happening through message boards or chat rooms or whatever, but, like, the landscape since I started writing, uh, and I don't know how long you've been writing with the aim to get published uh, in science fiction, but, like, over our careers, I know how drastically it has shifted, Mm -hmm. and it really makes your grapevine a truly valuable service because of just how much stuff happens well that that gets into the other reason i do it is uh as you were saying we're all every writer no matter your genre is at some point a beginning writer um you know very few people there are exceptions but very few people jump into the uh, writing scene with the connections and understanding of what's going on uh that Mm -hmm. they would have at, at at the as a professional um there are exceptions. I won't say who they are, but, yeah. <laughs> um, but one thing that irked me when I was a new writer is not knowing all this information that people who'd been in the genre for a long time took for granted, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, who not to submit to or that, well, you know, this publisher will rip you off. Um, you know, this publisher, they're good people, but they're, they're going to take two years on your story, you know, right. submission, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it, it, this was stuff that would be gossiped about and mentioned at conventions, but um, I didn't get to go conventions until I was an adult, so I wasn't mm-hmm. privy to that. 
Um, so yeah, it's uh, I wanted to make try to make it available for people so that it's not such a mystery on all this stuff. You know, share what you can. And now, now don't get me wrong, I'm not going to just publish any bit of gossip, anything right. like that. I'm using journalistic. Uh, uh, standards, you know, I, I source stuff, all that kind of thing. I got to have sources, you know. I hear a lot more, which I can't put in because I'm like, man, this is, yeah. Well, this would be libel, and I got no source. Well, I can't. I'm not going to do that, you know. But I mean, yeah. And I'm not this writing isn't a lady whistle down sort of situation. Yeah. So, but yeah, no, I, you know, and you want people to be able to know that, you know, this stuff, so that they can have a successful career too. Yeah. And that's. um you know, that's an, another thing about it, which I think certainly in the decade and a half that I've been doing this, I've seen more people wanting to open doors, you know, mm-hmm. and definitely like, through. I think throughout time, there will be people saying that in any space, there's too much gatekeeping, there's too much you know, exclusivity, any of that, but in the spaces that I'm in, in the spaces that we're in, like, even for all of the garbage fire that Twitter is, like, yeah, the writers I know on Twitter want to open doors and You're want right. to, like, create this openness. Yeah. No, it, the... There are indeed, every genre has gatekeeping processes and uh, has hurdles you have to overcome. Some fair, some not. Many of them not. Uh, Mm -hmm. I will say, though, that the science fiction and fantasy genre is a lot more welcoming and supportive than many other genres. The so-called literary community of (laughs) literary fiction is, and nonfiction is just an academic fiction, can be just a horrid place for backstabbing and stuff like that um, mm-hmm. and not helping writers succeed uh, the the science fiction genre has many issues um, you know it's been you know with issues of exclusivity and um, and diversity and mm-hmm. other issues over the years but in general they you know most writers in the genre try to help those who've come who are coming after them so which yeah. is that does I have noticed that because I used to be in the literary uh, I used to edit a uh, literary genre magazine and oh my goodness the oh it was <laughs> I could tell tales yeah. <laughs> one of the things uh, sort of thinking of on the um, like ways that we've been trying to build inclusivity mm-hmm. in science fiction fantasy horror and the reactionary forces that have worked against that Mm -hmm. i think is very interesting not because there are reactionaries because they're always going to be reactionaries but that we actually like the things that were happening and even if they were covered in some ways as like oh look at you know this drama that's going on when the sad and rabid puppies really were taking hold and trying to uh, bend the genre backwards mm-hmm. we got noticed outside of our community and i think at the time there was uh it was difficult just because we i felt like i had to do so much education in terms of like people who were suddenly saying so what's this sad puppy rabid puppy thing mm-hmm. that's going on but it raised awareness 
for so many people that there were people actually trying to make progress. Yeah. No, agreed. Uh, and right. oh, absolutely. You know, I think that that's I think that that's fantastic, and I you know I think it's terrible. Like I I obviously my feelings have been made abundantly clear about the sad rabbits, but <laughs> in terms of what it was able to do to open doors for people and show people that there are, you know, tons of writers out there and tons of brand new writers who are just breaking in right now who, you know, their voices wouldn't have been welcomed at the table. Oh, yeah. In the same way, even 10 years ago. Oh, absolutely. And that's uh, the, the science fiction, fantasy, and horror genres are very popular both in the United States and around the world. Um, if you look at video games, movies, films, uh, books on the, mm -hmm. in those genres, hyper-popular around the world, and yet the genre here, especially in the United States, for so many years pushed people away and said, well, we don't want you in it, you know, because of who you are and all of that. And that... Um, I do think that is changing. Uh, thank yeah. God. Um, yeah. But the, you know, I hate that it had, took something like the sad puppies, you know, to really kind of kickstart the change in the genre. But, you know, I think in the long term, people, I hope, maybe I'm projecting too much optimism, but I, I'm pretty optimistic usually. Um, I yeah. think in the long term, people will look back and see that, that episode as a turning point in the genre. Um doesn't mean the reactionary forces are gone. Doesn't mean the people hating change in the genre are gone and trying to exclude people. And none of that. Yes, that all still can go on. But I think you've seen a uh, uh, a massive change in the genre in the last few years. That where the genre is actually starting to move towards representing and looking like the people who are actually con reading and consuming the genre works around the world. You know, because mm -hmm. let's be honest, if if I mean that's the genre would die otherwise, so yeah. you know, if you love science fiction, fantasy, and horror, you better hope it's uh, representing the people who are who are watching and reading science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Otherwise, you you got nothing. So, um, yeah, it's good. I, I like where it's going, and I know hopefully we'll keep going. I mean, but I swear yeah. it sometimes feels like two steps forward, one back. So, for sure, and it, uh, you know, it. It makes me sad. I was like sort of on a similar tangent yesterday on Twitter uh, thinking about how the AIDS crisis uh, really wiped out an entire generation of yeah. queers and people who would have been yeah. my queer elders, certainly. Mm -hmm. uh, and so thinking about the ways that like the current generation of writers are getting to be those queer elders and mm -hmm. people of color elders and, you know, all these formerly more marginalized groups. I'm not going to say they're not marginalized anymore because they obviously are, yeah. but there's so much more progress that's being made. Yeah. Uh, and showing people, you know, getting getting people to see themselves in books. 
No, absolutely. And uh, I mean, you're mentioning uh, uh, what AIDS did to the entire ge- an entire generation. Um, I'm old enough, uh, without saying how old I am, that I can't. <laughs> uh, I experienced the tail end of uh, the AIDS crisis before the drugs uh, were able to revolutionize treatment. Um, mm-hmm. I witnessed, on a very personal level, I'm not going to go into details, but it. Um, I count myself as a survivor there because I had uh, very strong personal uh, ex- experiences there. Um, yeah. And I saw what it did to a generation of people, of to writers and artists and everybody else who are not here today. Um, I think of all my friends I've lost over the years. And, and it wasn't just that. It was the ripple effects from that, how it affected communities, uh, even, even to the present day. Um, mm-hmm. I was talking with a friend uh, a few months ago, uh, who's doing oral history on all of this, um, doing recordings around the country, and he um, and I told him, I said, I, I've got only one to two friends from that time period who are still alive, if you know what I'm yeah. saying. So, yes, I'm glad things have changed. You know, I mean, you know, but there's still shit going on. I hate to say it. You know, <laughs> sure. it's still so much. You know, and. But I am glad that things are, I think there's progress and it's not, it's nowhere near fast enough for my desire or hopes, but it's still progress. But yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. Sorry, you got, I can, I, I haven't, I should tell you, I have an amazing ability to bring a conversation down to a real, (laughs) I mean, I I try not to do it, but it's like a superpower. I can just bring the conversation down to a a real (laughs) bad level. I I brought up words. It was, you know, (laughs) I'm, I'm not blameless in this. Um, so bringing it back to, to specifically to writing and Mm -hmm. to your writing, I'm curious, as a journalist, what you bring from your day job to your writing. Um, I got to be honest. Um, to my fiction writing, I do not bring a lot of journalism. Um, now, my my journalistic writings through the genre grapevine and all that. Yes, I. I mm-hmm. You can see the journalistic standards and the and how we write and all that. Uh, For sure. To my fiction writing, I. I I mean, I would say, you know, I try to, I'd like to pretend that journalism makes me a better writer and makes me be more concise and stuff, but I could be wordy as hell, I admit it, <laughs> my fiction writing, and, you know, I try to go back and cut and clean it up, but no, I I, I think with my fiction writing, I'm trying, I'm I'm writing, it's how I want to write it, and I can't do that with journalism, um, mm-hmm. but I did get a lot of practice writing over the years in journalism. Uh, and when I, you know, worked for a book publisher and all that kind of stuff, you know, I got to experience critiques and editing and all that kind of, and that, that did obviously inf- influence me heavily. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, they, what Ernest Hemingway was famous for his fiction being journalistic, so to speak. Yeah. Mine's not like that. <laughs> so I, I admit it. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, I, I do not despite having gotten a degree in writing, I do not have a writing focused job. I ended up getting a job in the tech industry mm-hmm. and it's very interesting to me, the places where, uh, you know, I, I think that my training as a writer has helped me immensely in tech jobs, especially when I was working frontline support, just being able to mm-hmm. communicate with people 
over email very effectively, but uh, it's very interesting to me the the specific things that my tech work brings mm-hmm. back into my writing, and it's mostly like right. just being very attentive to if I'm using real technology, making it work right. Right, right, right. I will say, I mean, I do bring, when I research something, I bring uh, journalist, journalistic standards to it if I'm, you know, but a lot of my stories, um, you know, are set where in worlds where, you know, current research has, it can be flexible, if you know what I mean. But now I have yeah. done it, my, that, going back to that 8,000er story about the vampire on Mount Everest, hunting entitled tech bros yeah. uh, that one I researched heavily because it's set in the present time it's set climbing Mount Everest and obviously I've never climbed Mount Everest I, I never want mm-hmm. to climb Mount Everest I have no desire to climb Mount Everest um, so I had to re- I researched heavily you know how people did it what they do and all that kind of stuff so there yes yeah you know, so uh, I remember I was even trying to figure out which other mountains you know, 8,000 meter mountains can you see from the summit of Mount Everest? So, you know, I had to research all that. Yeah. Our, uh, I will put in a quick plug here. Our volunteer transcriptionist as the author D.H. Dunn, whose uh, series begins with, uh, oh, I can't, I see it from here. I'll put it in the show notes, but uh, his uh, series is, centered around Mount Everest oh, cool. and uh so we uh haven't spoken in a while but when we were meeting regularly in our writing group he had in his office just a map of Mount Everest and all the locations and all of this stuff uh oh, cool research material behind him and so it's uh you know as far as things to research Everest has like a great deal of material already out there, which Correct. Yeah. compared to some of the things I find myself trying to research, it is, you know, very nice to be able to just say, oh, okay, there right. is this much literature on this, as opposed right. to there is one stub Wikipedia article with two citations, Correct. both of which are 404s now. And you definitely, I mean, I think writers need to if they're writing about the world around them and and the people around them, they need to they need to do their research. They need to, you know, you don't just oh I'm gonna set oh I've, I want to write this story set in Japan, but I've never been in Japan. I know nothing about Japanese culture or people or anything like that. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. big red. I have big red alarm bells, you know, and, and lights going off right there. Um, you know, but. You know, sometimes, you know, in our genre, you can, you know, if there's, you can also, if you got, people don't really know much about a subject or something, you know, you might have some freedom there. It's always a balancing act, but you definitely, you know, research, people need to research it, but then you got to be careful that, you know, you know, you always hear the writers who went, did 20 years of research for something and never ended up writing the story either. So, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so at this point in the show, I just heard this weird noise and a blue police box showed up behind me. And I was just wondering if we could uh, step into this time machine for a second <laughs> and go back and talk to uh, 
young beginning writer Jason and see if there are any things you know now that you wish you had known then. Um, one, I wish I'd known that it was okay to write genre fiction. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I thought, uh, I write the stories I want to write. Uh, and I grew up reading and loving genre works. Um, but I, w I definitely was impressed with the attitude that, oh, science fiction, fantasy, and horror are not really true <laughs> literature, so to speak. And mm -hmm. then if I wanted to be a serious writer, I would have to write outside those genres. Um, I did grow out of that, thank God. Um, yeah. But, you know, that was something I think I really, you know, uh, I remember uh, I edited a literary journal, um, a general literary journal um, for a long number of years. And my co-editor and I, uh, we went to college together. And then when I met him later, uh, he sadly passed away now. Um but uh, we were, he was asking, he's like, well, why do you write this? And I said, well, write in this genre. You know, he basically was implying, I mean, he was a, you know, a poet and well-published and big mm -hmm. awards and stuff like that. And he was like, you know, basically he was implying, oh, you're a good writer. Why are you wasting your time with this? Yeah. And I said, well, this allows me to write the stories I want to write and they matter. And, uh, and I was able to find, you know, I couldn't have articulated that as a beginning writer to him. I would have just been ashamed and all that kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. that's one thing I wish I'd known. I wish I could had known that uh, you don't have to. Uh, another thing, I always believed that, oh, to be a serious uh, writer, you have to write novels, 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 novels. Well, you know what? Short fiction is damn amazing. And mm -hmm. some of the best writing I read is in short fiction. And most of my writing is short fiction because I love writing short fiction. Now, does I do have a novel coming out later this year. That's cool. Uh, yeah. But, you know, this attitude that to be taken seriously as a writer, you must uh, publish novel-length fiction almost exclusively. Um, bullshit. I wish I had yeah. known that earlier, you know, because... You know, but because uh, I've trunked a few novels over the year just because I was trying to force them out. You know, well, forcing out any kind of story is the worst thing to do. Mm -hmm. You know, so I wish I'd known For those sure. things, and I and I wish I'd. Uh, um, and I'm still I'm still learning things about myself, you know, and and putting those yeah. in my writing, you know, and so um, I wish I'd known when I was younger that it's okay to be who I am. You know, because mm -hmm. unfortunately, I felt feel like for too many years I tried to annoy. Uh, <laughs> I tried to annoy who I was. No, I tried to avoid who I truly was, um, and I think that hurt my writing too. You know, so mm -hmm. those three things is what I would say. Yeah, uh, um, to touch on the short fiction versus novel thing, I think you know there's definitely short fiction in a lot of different spaces and especially mm -hmm. now uh with the online publishing revolution mm -hmm. uh you know tm 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 uh that there's so much space for short fiction uh and you know i think genre has always been a place that's been sort of a haven for that correct that you know we we have this history uh, regardless of of the many many problems of the golden age and silver age pulps, mm -hmm. that we've always we've you know maintained this legacy of short fiction 
sometimes being a way for writers to come up that I think sometimes it is definitely still treated as, you know, mm-hmm. you write short fiction until you are good enough to write a novel. Right, exactly. But there are so many authors who write short fiction almost exclusively and that's amazing and there are you know some amazing authors out there who i've never read a novel from and don't even know if they have a novel out but who if i see their name in a table of contents in uncanny or analog or anywhere else i will go and seek them out because i know their quality oh no absolutely i mean one of my favorite writers um is Randall Keenan, who uh, sadly passed away last year. Um, mm-hmm. uh, he did write uh, kind of uh, his first book was kind of a novel. It was I, I, I use that in quotes, but he was mainly right. known for his short stories. Uh, he has an amazing collection came out in the early nineties called "Let the Dead Bury Their Dead." Uh, there is a story in there called "Run Mourner Run." I urge everyone to read this story, "Run Mourner Run" by Randall Keenan. The first time I read this, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Thailand, and I read mm-hmm. this in, a, in an anthology of, uh, I believe at the time it was a, a, one of the first big anthologies of gay and lesbian uh, literature, um, mm-hmm. and that was the term they used then. And I read the book, that story in there, and it blew me the f away uh, <laughs> that a short story could have this much power. I immediately reread this story two times after that. Um, Mm -hmm. and then sought out his work and his other stories are great Um, and then uh, you know he you know you always got the sense um, uh, oh where's his next uh, book coming out his next uh, his next when is he going to do novel well he did have a new short story collection come out last year right before he came out called If If I Had Two Wings this short story collection is amazing too I mean the man was a short story genius Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I just, I recommend everybody read his work. I mean, um, there is nothing wrong with just writing short fiction, um, mm-hmm. you know, so I, and there's nothing wrong with writing novels either. I mean, you right. know, write what you need to write, but I think sometimes the marketplace and the culture pushes the idea, as you were saying, that novels are what makes you a serious writer. And I say bullshit to that, um, mm-hmm. you know, because the story should be what the story should be. And I don't want to read a novel which should have been a short story. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. And in the genre, there's often, you know, you've over the years, a, a short story will win an award and then the or and the author will a publisher will pay them to expand it to a novel. And it's like, I've never been impressed when that happens. You know, mm-hmm. let the story, the story should be what it should be. And if it should be a short story or short fiction, uh, it can be a beautiful thing because it has a poetry and power that, you know, is, is difficult to uh, keep going over novel length. For sure. But read Randall uh, Keenan. Read Randall Keenan, please, people. <laughs> yeah. Uh Links, as always, will be in the show notes, listeners. So uh, I encourage you to hunt these books down. Um, I'm just thinking in terms of, you know, not novel length, but that the first four Murderbot novellas by Mm -hmm. Martha Wells are a perfect example of this because each one is just this bite-sized morsel of... I love them! I know! Snark and glee and 
like a murder bot who would really just rather be watching soap operas <laughs> and it's so good and you know i haven't uh i haven't yet picked up the murder bet murder bot novel uh just because it's great too i gotta say it, it and, is beautiful but, yeah <laughs> everything i've heard about it it's amazing and you know and i expect it to be you know the murder bot novellas but bigger mm-hmm. in some ways but also like i know from you know back to to our very first guest on this show sarah gailey like having writing novellas writing novelettes is such a different skill than writing yeah. a novel exactly and you do different things with them yeah i will say i'm uh as a writer i'm a reader of genre first but i'm also a writer um and nothing irritates me more than when i read a novel and as a writer i can take detect this when you're reading a novel <laughs> and i'm like oh this is filler to pad it out or this yeah. is you know what i mean the story was not you know um Unfortunately, this our genre is not sometimes known for padding of novels. Um, yeah, you know, but you know, like I said, when I read a novel that is just wow, um, um, then that's oh yeah, I love that. But yeah, I do get irritated with that kind of thing. You don't see that as much with short fiction because you know at that length, if you start padding and and fluffing up a short story, it, yeah, it's not going to work because of the short length. But you can get away yeah. with it with novel length fiction. But as a reader, it does irritate me. Yeah, and uh, you know, again, with the uh, the ways that the market has shifted, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's a lot easier. You know, I'm not saying it's easy to get a novel or a novella or anything else published, but it's a lot easier to get a novella published now. Oh yeah, and absolutely. You know. I know um, that Tor.com is publishing full-length novels as well, but Tor.com as a largely at the beginning of their life as a novella publisher was amazing. Oh, yeah. No, Tor.com has revolutionized uh, novellas in the genre. Um, before, 10 years ago, if you wrote a novella, there were a few magazines that might accept it in the genre. Um, we're talking two or three. Um, yeah. And then if you didn't place into one of those... You were screwed. To, yeah, uh, to you were basically blunt. done unless you got an anthology, like a collection mm-hmm. deal. Um, I had a novella come out in Inner Zone, uh, the British magazine. I believe it was 2010, and it was actually a finalist for the Nebula for best novella. Um, and I was just, when they accepted it, it was like it was a stretch for them. They didn't publish many novellas, but I was just like, oh, thank you, because I had yeah. nowhere else to send it. Yeah, <laughs> and and you know, it's like, and I was sitting there. Wow, and, and I, that's a shame because novella is a powerful storytelling form. Uh, I mm-hmm. love the novella form. and But then that was in just 10 years ago, just over 10 years ago. And then now it's totally different. And there's so many great novellas coming out. And the great thing is the novella space allows, uh, um, is, allows more ex- experimentation with the stories and stuff mm-hmm. that you might not get with a novel-length fiction. Um, and it's it's also there are so many great new authors uh, and new diverse voices coming up through publishing novellas. I mean, I just love it. So yeah, yeah. and I do most of that credit needs to go to tour dot com. They uh, they revolutionized it, and it, thank goodness they did. I love it. Yeah, for real. 
so speaking of novels, and we mentioned this a little bit earlier, but your novel Plague Birds is coming out later this year. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, sure. No, no, no. Yeah, Plague Birds, um, it's uh, coming out from Apex Publications. Um, it's it, The story, uh, I originally published uh, the, my first Plague Bird story in Interzone, the British uh, sci-fi magazine, and it mm -hmm. won their readers uh, our reader poll of the year for best story. Um, and it's about it, it's and it's a it's kind of a it's science fiction, but kind of it, but reads like fantasy. It's about it's a it's a future Earth uh, where um, genetic manipulation of humanity uh, and animal genes being put into people have really uh, changed humanity vastly. And then the um, what you have is in this society, uh, you have artificial intelligence who are trying to return uh, isolated groups of humans to more of a standard humanity as we used. But what you would they would call ours what we are now their standard humanity. They're trying to return mm -hmm. that. And you have creatures um, on this planet called plague birds on earth called plague birds who are humans who are melded with a artificial intelligence in their blood who basically judge and enforce the laws of the society um they do Very this cool. by accessing the memories and everything like that they're not well loved and the, yeah. so the novel is about a young woman who is uh tricked and betrayed into becoming one of these plague birds um My and goodness. her quest to find out what's going on with her life uh, but it's also about finding your own community. Uh, it's about finding your own uh, family, uh, finding your place in the world. So it, I'm excited about it. But it's, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm it's going to be coming out. So I published two Plague Bird stories in Interzone, and they were very well received. Uh, the second story does, is not in this. I reworked the first story as kind of the opening of the novel. Um, mm -hmm. But remember how I said I didn't like when a story was expanded yep. to... This one, I didn't expand the first story. I just used it as it's the starting point, and then I continued on with the novel. You know what I'm saying? Very nice, <laughs> so, yeah. But um, yeah. I love the world so much, and readers really liked the characters and the situation so much that I, I was like, well, let me keep going to write a novel. So, And that's where here we are today. That's fantastic. So uh, before we get going, where can our readers find... Uh, <laughs> readers... So before we get going, Jason, where can our listeners find you online? Um, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Jason Sanford, um, at Jason Sanford. One, and I'm also on uh, www.jasonsanford.com. You can just Google me. Um, I have a couple of short story collections out. Uh, again, short fiction tends to be my thing right now. Um, yep. And uh, you can check all, all that is can be found on my website. Fantastic. And... Uh, I should also mention again your Patreon, where oh, yes. listeners can find your genre grapevine. Correct. You can always just Google genre grapevine, and that Patreon is patreon.com slash Jason Sanford SF. Thank you. Yep. Nope. Nope. Check it out. Please do. Please do. And uh, I appreciate the support. Like I said, I do enjoy doing this journalism in the genre, and uh, the Patreon support allows me to do that. Yeah, I, it's an invaluable service, and I thank you for it greatly. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Jason, thank you so, so much for joining us again. Oh, no, anytime. I love doing this, and like I said, especially in these days, it's nice to be able to interact with people in the genre. I miss conventions. For sure. <laughs> for sure. 
Uh, listeners, join us again next month for the beginning of season three of Tales from the Trunk, if you can even believe it, when our guest will be Kelly Robson. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. Our theme music is Paper Wings by Ryan Boyd. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a sticker and logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and I tweet at hbbisniex. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. <laughs> <laughs>